I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very sacred episode, and I feel incredibly honored to be talking today with Jack and Linda Major. I am telling you, this is a powerful episode about a daughter who did not survive her eating disorder and all the things that Jack and Linda tried to do to save their daughter's life. It is incredible. Like I said, I am honored that they allowed me to interview them. And I just think it's, this is a really important episode for everyone to hear. All right, let's go. Good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to a very, very special episode of Recovery Bites. My guests for today is, is, excuse me, everyone, are Linda and Jack Major. Linda and Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. And thank you for having us on your podcast today. It's an honor to be here. It is truly an honor. It, it is an honor for me because the narrative that you have to share is so powerful. Um, In fact, I am going to let listeners know ahead of time, I have already started crying during this interview when when we were first talking earlier, because it is such a powerful story. And I said to the two of you, I hope you don't mind. I think I'm going to cry during this interview. So we always say tears are welcome. They're real. It, 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 you know, expresses how we feel about a situation. So Linda and Jack, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves? Well, it all started out very simply and ordinarily. We're just an ordinary family, lots of love, lots of family support, two beautiful children, and it, it proceeded that way for a long time, and I'm just so grateful that we had so many wonderful years. I met Linda when she was 16. I was 22 and had just got out of pharmacy school and uh, she was working in the pharmacy that I was sent to. And uh, I mean, I I didn't really know how old she was. She was mature beyond her years. And um, that's the way Emily was. Emily was mature beyond her years. Uh, I I remember when she was 14, I said, boy, she's like a little, little Linda. She's just like, you know, nurturing and caring and, and stuff. So, you know, we, we, we wrote the book as a memoir 
Um, the person that helped us with the editing said, we got to start from the beginning. Everybody has to know who Emily was before. We had been writing for a year at that oh, yeah. point. But, been writing. Um, but it was her, she said, we, we have to know Emily first. Yeah. We, and, and she was exactly right. So we started at the very beginning. Yeah. So. so can can I interrupt for a moment? Um, first of all, I want to say the title of the book because it is so amazing. And it is simply called Emily, the story of a girl and her family hijacked by anorexia. And it is very critical that you start from the beginning because so often clients are seen at their worst and professionals, therapists, dietitians, doctors, we're, we're all human. Sometimes we, we don't immediately remember the story before the eating disorder happened. And so the first part of your book is just a beautiful story of a family navigating through life, regular ups and downs. And then it gets turned on turned on its head, if that's the right expression, forgive me. And maybe that's one of the things I feel like, and please forgive me, I, I don't know you personally, and it is not my place to say I read your book, so I know you, but I feel like I do. And maybe that's why this book was so beautiful and difficult, because you started from the beginning of her, of her life. I I want you to go through it. And what I really want people to think about, and, and we talked about this before the interview started, I'm going to read something, a small part in the book, um, which is really the, the message, the takeaway, the critical piece about this, which is the system failed. The system failed Emily failed you, your son, like this, the, the system let Emily go many times when she needed to be in treatment. And this is the critical piece that people I think need to understand or that you want people to understand because mental illness continues to snowball and get worse and worse and worse. It is the worse it gets, the more somebody needs support and guidance. And instead she continued to get discharged. So the example that you use, Linda, you are talking about a time when your father had fallen and hit his head and was taken to the hospital. And this is what you wrote. I think about my father's situation, his physical and mental condition, and how the medical community responds to his needs. He's admitted to the hospital with an injury promptly evaluated, and when it's determined he can no longer safely remain at home, physicians and social workers quickly place him where he'll receive the level of care he needs to remain safe. He will be nourished and cared for. Then I think about our daughter's situation. Emily has developed many serious maladaptive behaviors, and it's obvious she's in denial about how sick she is. She cannot take care of herself, yet time after time, she is treated acutely at the hospital and after only a few days is deemed competent and sent home. She's given a plan she can't follow because the disease has rendered her too mentally ill. 
Emily lives in the same county as her grandfather, goes to the same hospital where the identical medical system prevails, yet the very same system that ensures my father is cared for repeatedly sends my daughter home to become sicker and sicker. We, we would, we would beg, we would, you know, cry and beg for them to, you know, that the hospitalizations, um, especially when she was, you know, abusing the alcohol um, became so frequent. And I would say to them, I would say, look, we look at her record here. Look at how many times we're here from once a month to twice a month to once a week to twice a week. And, you know, we, we're going to be back. We're not going to see you. It'll be a whole new set of doctors and they'll, you know, reevaluate her. And, and I had a, I had a social worker say to me, you know, well, you know, she's an adult and she has the right to make bad decisions. And I just was stunned. I, I, I just looked at her and said, well, obviously she has made bad decisions. And so are you making a bad decision? So, well, you know, it's that part of, at that part of the journey, um, it all became more complicated. Well, the whole time through, because our daughter was an adult, but she reached out for help herself. She was a pharmacist. She had her doctorate. Um, she loved her job, but she realized that she had a problem and it took some time for her to realize she needed more help than was available here. And took a whole lot of courage for her to tell people that she had anorexia because you know this stigma and shame that goes around having a mental it surrounds having a mental illness but she did it and you know she went away for treatment and gained two pounds and they sent her home because they told her she wasn't sick enough and and I believe that if she would have had the levels of care that she needed at that point that she would still be here found some level of recovery because she was reaching out for help herself. But after that, she was so shamed and ridiculed and embarrassed. She went right back to work and, and literally worked herself to the bone. And those two pounds she gained were within um, six days. And then the insurance company said to put her, um, put her over the weight for being 75% of a low normal BMI. So, you know, that that was their criteria. She wasn't sick enough for any more treatment. And there was nothing here in Rochester that they would cover for her to, to come home and um, yeah, all we had here was get the out, next level of care. We had outpatient that they denied too. And she was determined that she had to do this herself. That was part of her pride. I realized as time went on that that was probably the eating disorder speaking. Um, we tried to write this book very honestly because they're I think I say in the book um, that there are dozens of things I would do different and a million just, just the same. But we we were learning as we went along yeah. and there wasn't um, support. I mean, we had family support, but even at the beginning, um, you know, it, it's your child and you don't want people to judge them. So eventually, you know, we, you know, let family in because we needed their support. But it wasn't something that we could just openly talk about. There weren't the support groups and, and things that there are now. And um, yeah, it was, it was really the four of us and um, my parents, um, my sister and brother and, you know, their, you know, their spouses and 
that that was it and and maybe a couple friends and even then you just don't want people to judge your child because i we hope that she would get well and tell her own story someday yeah i mean early early on you know what what do you do when your child is sick you you take them to a doctor and the doctor gets them better and that was how naive i was back in you know early early on in 2009 and 10 and and not understanding that how little doctors get educated in medical school about eating disorders. And, and that's one of my two main objective is to get the medical community more educated. And it's wonderful that her book is being used at Columbia University by a professor there to teach graduate uh, um, nutritionists and graduate uh, psychology students. And my other uh, mission is to get the insurance company to understand this this mental illness, all mental illnesses, but you know this one that has a twenty percent mortality rate and is taking taking the young away from us too soon. We need a more affordable care too. Absolutely. And and I want to point out. And, you know, I, I don't mean to give too much away from the book because I want people to get it, but the extremes that you went to to get her care. And when I say extremes, I mean, you made incredibly difficult choices. For example, and it's in the way you open the book, Linda, Emily got a DUI which is not from my understanding when people go to jail for it there's other there's other things that they do yet in such desperation thinking that if she went to jail she would go through the system and in fact that's the way you were advised by the judge correct or the lawyer mm-hmm. if we can get her into jail we will then transfer her to where she needs to go the excruciating pain of a parent making that choice. I, I don't know. I just, I don't know what to say about that. It still haunts us. Yeah, it, it haunts us, but it bought her a chance to get better. It gave her more years to live because the way the alcohol um, abuse was becoming, I was just afraid she was going to, um, you know, she, she lived down the street from us in her own home and spent most of the day in a in a dark bedroom, you know, passed out. And and I always had this image in my head because coming out of her bedroom was the cellar stairs. And I had this image of her, you know, going down those cellar stairs. And I and I knew she just couldn't stay home anymore. She just could not. Well, you know. and that's that's when situations get complicated and, you know, because she would there were times that she came back home and there were times that we stayed with her, but it all it all got very complicated, and and she did uh, for a time, for a real relatively short time, drank, but it was just to numb, to numb what had happened to her life, and and people don't understand that that's not unusual no. um, when people have anxiety and a mental illness that is consuming them, they want relief. So you know we we learned a lot a lot along the way, that's for sure, and um, just going forward. Um, she had told a friend that she wanted her story written and it was very hard to put parts of it out, out there. Um, but 
coming back around now that the book is out there, the number of uh, letters and emails um, reaching out that have lived through similar situations or lost someone uh, to anorexia or eating disorder or substance use, all those things, those people have just reached out across the board and um, it, it's, it's an honor to hear their stories. And we just have to do better as a society. We, we just have to do better with mental illness in general and, and certainly with, with eating disorders. And um, I, I don't know, but, but having done, having written the book, having worked with uh, people advocating all those things help us kind of turn, not that you can turn pain no. into anything else, but we're, we're kind of assuaging it into passion and it helps and it it's what Emily wanted at the end and um and and we just do it to honor her and her struggle because we loved her so much she was exceptional person and so so many people that have reached out to us um friends that were here you know Linda has a um salon here in the house that we put in when Emily was small and you know so many people came in she was cutting their hair and you know and they had no idea. I mean, they, they knew Emily was, was sick, but they had no idea what we were going through. And after reading the book, sorry, they would apologize for, you know, not being there. And, you know, and so many people that we, we don't know, the people from other countries and all around this country have said the same thing you did, Karen, that they felt like they were there with us living this. And, and um, so, and it really is, was, unbelievable just unbelievable the things that happened and um and just begging for help time after time after time and um no, it, I, it just shouldn't it just shouldn't happen i could tell them exactly what needed to happen um but there was not continuity throughout the system the comprehensive care that people need and as a parent um well i think Parents know this, but there, there's a window with your children where what you say really resonates and sinks in. And, and then when they get to be, I don't know, starts at 16, by the time they're 21, you know, it's like that window's pretty much closed. And people who they know can say the same thing. And if it's somebody else, it sticks. So I, I you know, that's kind of frustrating. But she needed, she knew every day of her life how much we loved her and how hard we were trying. And I realize now that she was trying her best too. Um, but I. The eating disorder just yeah, was. It just. You know, it, got that in, so ingrained in her. And, and she um, was too, she was so angry when she was sent home that first time. So angry. Oh, excuse me. You know what I was going to say was that what I think is really important is to have people try to see the person through the disease. Because as you said, Karen, in a hospital, you're seeing somebody at their worst, right? And I really do think if there were, you know, people, and I, Emily did have a wonderful therapist and her eating disorder therapist was wonderful, but I think she needed some new connections along the way and some more people to believe in her. And I think that that would have helped. But the system, I mean, her, her primary care physician was great too, but the system is just so disconnected. And if you're 
schizophrenic and you live in another country and you don't show up for an appointment, they check on you. In this country, they don't. And I, I, I was the one to make sure that she made all her appointments, but I couldn't orchestrate a lot of the care because when she got really sick, she didn't, the eating disorder shut me out. And that was very frustrating um, and, and with devastating results that shouldn't have happened. And doctors, they just they just hid behind the HIPAA, you know, privacy uh, act. And uh, because she was, you know, at that time, 29, when she was, you know, first reached out for help herself and then um, all the hospitalizations and, and all that. So, and I said, you know, back when HIPAA was passed in 1996, I think, it wasn't meant to shut parents out of their child's care at, at, at any age. And, you know, certainly you can say somebody's an adult at 18, but that's far from uh, being, being an adult. So, and especially when somebody's malnourished and their brain isn't, isn't getting the, the nourishment they the needs to make uh, rational decisions. And Emily was the most rational person that, you know, we knew. And um, from early on to, you know, saving, a lot of money because she said, I knew I was going to need it someday to be able to, you know, stay in my house and everything, which eventually didn't happen either. But it was, it was remarkable how she thought everything out. And then the eating disorder just took that thought process away. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit because Emily's story is is so unusual, starting with how old she was when she started, when you first noticed. Now, I know that Emily had GERD, which we can talk about so people can understand, when she was a young teenager, which had a significant impact. But Linda, you said you didn't notice it until she was trying on her wedding dresses. Like, Emily started the behaviors later in life and it still took her life. I think people think, well, it had to have started, you know, they had to have had it for 20, 30, 40 years for it to take their life. It, it did not, it, it did not take that long. Um, well, I, I think the GERD did change her, her eating because she had to think about, and, you know, it was very obvious that, um, she was very open about it and told us, and, he, and we went out for a walk too soon after dinner, you know, she would just, spit you know, up. spit up. She, and would, she yeah. just said it was just embarrassing. You know, we took her to the doctor, we did all that. And she um, eventually, when she was in college, had surgery for that. But um, it's interesting because a lot of people develop eating disorders uh, when they have different Diseases. I think there's a study going on now for people who have celiac disease who develop eating disorders right now. So it's it's interesting. And uh, I know someone with um, scleroderma, scleroderma. scleroderma who uh, developed an eating disorder. And so it's um, they can manifest in so many different ways. But she she was strong and healthy and athletic up until. Um, yeah. Yeah. When, when, when she, she went, went to yeah. pharmacy school and she got accepted, it was an accelerated doctorate program. It was three years straight through, you know, she had already gotten her uh, undergrad from 
uh, Wells College. She wanted to be a vet and couldn't get into vet school because she didn't have large animal experience. And unbeknownst to us, she um, applied to pharmacy school. And um, we thought she would just keep reapplying. Yeah. Apply again. It's not unusual. So it was a very stressful three years. And, and there was, you know, relationship um, uh, issues, you know. Well, she was in a long distance relationship then, and she was, she put a lot of, you know, pressure on herself. Um, right. But, so, you know, yeah. and again, not giving away too much of the book, but, you know, she would come home and this beautiful curly blonde hair was starting to disappear. And, um, you know, she was tested for all kinds of deficiencies and nutritional deficiencies and nothing showed up and that was just well and, and if she would have had ED disorder at that point if it would have been full, full blown it probably would have shown up yes. you know on the lab so at that point you know eventually she did have a full-blown um, eating disorder and anorexia but there were so many other maladaptive um, things that happened subsequently as time went by and she didn't get the help that she needed and um, yeah so it, Again, just just like um, an alcoholic who who reaches out for help, you know, when they want to get the help, not when they're forced to get it. You know, when when she wanted to get help in 2010 and and, and reached out and found her own center to go to because they had you know equine therapy there and she loved horses and and all that. And then you know to be sent home six days later and and the, the center kept her for a couple of days and and tried to fight with the insurance company to keep her there, but ultimately she came home and but I do believe that in the people that I talk to that have recovered from an eating disorder uh, a lot of them have been forced into treatment and they almost all say to me that they don't even hardly remember and it wasn't like it wasn't even them at that time you know once they found recovery it was it was they barely remember that time and they just they really weren't themselves so that just speaks to how we need to to look at treatment and continuity of care and all those things. And, and often people fall through the cracks when um, at transitional times um, coming out of treatment, people tell me, well, my family, I was gone for a long time and, uh, and they just went on without me. I think it's hard for them to feel like they fit back in again, like everything went on without them. So I always, I always say there should be a, a halfway house for people to come into to, with, with people who, who went through the same thing and have recovered and, and let them assimilate back into life there rather than going back to the, the uh, same environment that they uh, came from when they were struggling. So, But there are recovery coaches now for eating yeah. disorders. So that's wonderful. There's wonderful therapists yeah. um, like you, Karen, out there who really get it. <clears throat> and, and I just think that there's so many medical professionals who mean well, <clears throat> but the systems are overtaxed. Um, and the medical professionals are overworked, and a lot of these cases are very difficult, and we just we just need to find ways to do better. It's not that the medical professionals don't care; it's just an overwrought, overworked system right now. And they're all dictated by the insurance industry of what they'll um, what they'll pay for. Uh, so you know, we we wrote this book so that hopefully the system would change so no other parent would go through what we went through and no other child would go through what Emily went through so um it um 
it took, you know, three and a half years of, of tears and but a lot of laughter going through pictures of, you know, old pictures of uh, the family and Emily in particular. And, and this is so hard on siblings too. I mean, you know, it's just the powerlessness that we all felt. But um, and Matthew know. was worried about us as much as he was worried about his sister, you know, and and what it was what it was doing to to us. And you know, we're still together. That that uh, always that doesn't happen all the time. It just splits up families. But um, when you know, I met her at sixteen. I knew I wasn't going to leave her. So, <laughs> and uh, fortunately, uh, we're stronger together. Um, and we didn't sure. always, you know, through this whole journey, we didn't always see eye to eye on everything, but we did respect each other's whatever way the other person was seeing. If it was a little bit different, and it was here and there, we respected each other and didn't try to control the other person. And I always just said, you know, I have to do what I have to do so I can sleep at night. Because if anything happens, I have to live with myself. So, um, and I learned very, you know, I learned to trust my gut. I learned that, yeah, there's some professionals who give you great advice and there's some advice to be tried that wasn't great at all. And so it's just, it's just a, a system that, that needs to come together. We need more education um, and we need more people who are passionate about helping people with eating disorders. And so many of the people in the field have struggled with an eating disorder or have had someone in their family that struggled. And, and I think just like anything, people <clears throat> can have empathy for something, but they don't really understand unless they've lived it on some level. You know, since we joined the Western New York Comprehensive Care Center um, Community Advisory Board and have advocated for their funding um, locally here in Rochester and in Albany, and uh, we went to Washington the spring after Emily passed with the uh, Eating EDC, Disorder EDC. Counts, uh, Council, EDC, Eating Coalition. Disorder Coalition, right. sorry. Everywhere we go and we sit down and talk to these politicians or their aides, everybody knows somebody. They go, oh, yeah, you know, or I struggled myself or my sister or, you know, I know a friend. Everybody knows somebody. It's such a, a prevalent problem and becoming more and more prevalent um, um, through COVID. Just like all mental illnesses, have you picked? You can't. You can't read an you know an article every day. You can read an article about what COVID has done to the mental illness uh, community and how um, overwhelmed the system is with mental illness now and. Um, well, we're all fragile and everybody's working on something and we have to just get rid of the shame and the stigma and we have to have sp safe spaces where we can go and where we can talk is the people who are struggling themselves and and we need those same support for the people who are supporting them yeah and i mean we we felt we were on an island by ourselves we didn't know who to you know things have changed in the last 10 years and we were just out there on the island and we were doing the best we could with the advice we were getting and um you know next month we're hosting facilitating a, a meeting for parents and friends of um 
adults that are suffering. Partners. There's a lot out there for you know parents and friends of adolescents, but there's nothing out there for people that have adults. So we'll see how many people show up, but it's just a casual meeting for people to talk and vent and and have other people listen to their frustrations. We're not medical therapists or anything else, but it's just, we hope that, you know, it's just kind of like a living room conversation to have people come and, and not be judged. And, and Just a safe space to talk. And it's a, there's a wonderful art therapist by the name of Sarah Barron, who's letting us um, use her studio. She'll be facilitating with us. And we hope to just have more things like this. They won't all be there, but I just think it's just, just good to do different activities. And I'm hoping that a lot of different people will show up and find support. And it's not something that you have to sign up for or go to uh, once a week or once a month. It's probably something we'll do every couple months and whoever can come, whoever can come, comes. comes yeah. You just have to sign up for it because sometimes when you're inside, there's limited space and like that. But it's something that we can do that we wish was there for us. And I will say to people to go to the show notes to get your information so that they can they can sign up for these events as they come out because it is critical. Support for caregivers is such a critical piece. I want to ask you a question, and this is probably the million-dollar question, which there is not really a coherent answer, if that's the correct way of putting it. Um, you know, I the, the thing that struck me about the narrative, about the book, is that Emily's eating disorder had such a hold on her that even throughout all the struggles, you all still had a really good relationship, yet she did not allow you to be involved in any of the treatment. And this, again, as we started, goes to the beginning of what would you say to a parent who has an adult child and the child is not letting the parent be part of the treatment? You know, that is such a tough question. Um, I think it depends a lot on mentally if the patient um, has any suicidal ideation or things like that. I don't know. It's it's so complicated because sometimes because of the the HIPAA laws. So you would say guardianship. Well, absolutely do guardianship, but then sometimes you fear that someone might attempt to take their lives or take their life. And we looked into that a couple times, yeah. and and you know the lawyer said that. that oh, and be- they said it almost never happens. It's a long you know court um, battle that that happens if and if your adult child is paying their bills and keeping up their house, there's, there's nothing that it's most likely not going to happen. So it helps, or some people have done it successfully and it's the right thing to do in some cases. And I don't, I don't have all the answers. Um, I don't, I just think that probably the most powerful thing is that other people come in and, and can get through that breakthrough, that, that, barrier, you know, somebody who's inspiring, somebody who believes in them, maybe can convince them to do things that their parent can't. I don't know. It is a million dollar question, a hundred million dollar question. Yeah. I know it is. Yeah. 
you know, <clears throat> as a father, um, as all fathers, I, I was charged to to fix this, fix what was going on, you know. And before Emily passed, she we sat down and she just grabbed my hand and said, "Dad, you couldn't fix it." And and, and I and I thought about that, and I <clears throat> thought, well. Emily, the eating disorder wasn't letting her fix it, okay? And um, if, if Emily was an adult and, and had cancer, and, and I always said she had cancer, her brain, you know, the eating disorder is metastasizing and is just taking over more and more. For, if, she had, if she had cancer, they would have treated her and treated her you know, they would have made sure that she got the treatment that was needed, right? I mean, that's the way our system works, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, truly, I, 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 I as a father, again, I think back. I should have gotten angry in the hospital, really angry, and, and just like I did at the end when they turned us away, and and. And just let people know what was happening and how how this is happening. Going to politicians and, and letting them, you know, know my daughter is dying in front of my eyes, and there's nothing that the system allows me to do. So I think, and I'm so glad that our story has gotten so many places as it has. And and um, when somebody famous dies. And, you know, Karen Carpenter was the first, but dies from anything, you know, all the morning shows. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, my God, this is such a loss. And, and but every 52 minutes, somebody's dying from an eating disorder that isn't famous. And those stories need to go be out there and told so that the system understands what parents and friends of these people are going through and and I hate to put it into terms of money but that's what politicians understand you know and I and I said when I got much of the paperwork from Emily's treatments and and there was uh, about a year that I wasn't able to get but it was it was over three quarters of a million dollars that was spent on her treatments and, you know, the study that came out last year, the Stripe study that, you know, it's costing society $65 billion, you know, from treatments and lost lost wages and, and parents losing, you know, everything. And, and I said, you know, here's a girl that, that had everything going for her, was a farm D, making good money, had her own house, was traveling, was paying her taxes, paying her bills, and ended up on Social Security Disability and Medicaid and took from the system and then and ultimately died at 35 when she had 35 more years of, of you know, to be a productive member of society. And, and that's just not right. It's just not right to, to just let these people deteriorate to that point and fall through the cracks. Fall through the cracks. Because and have to end up making decisions like, you know, again, we know people who have, have lost children and they weren't there. If, if I was not able to be there at the end with Emily, I don't think I could go on. 
because uh, being there gave me the comfort to show her how much we loved her right to the end. And, and I know she, she wasn't, you know, talking at that time, but I know she could hear us and it, um, the, the, she was able to pass with dignity and in comfort just gives me, um, it makes me able to, to go on and, and, you know, and, and write the story and, and tell the story. And, um, and, you know, her, I just want her life to be, her, her life certainly was worth something. I wanted to be worth something. I want her life to save somebody else. She gave her life, you know, Emily, or Linda says, people come into this world when they're supposed to, and they leave this world when they're supposed to. And when they, I can tap into my spiritual side, yeah, I can look at it that way. Yeah. I can't always look at it that way, but, but I have to, I have to kind of believe that, but I have to believe the crazy, crazy events that happen there has to be good that comes from it. Yeah. There has to be. Yeah. Yeah. We're just trying to shed light on the darkness that we. There's something that you wrote towards the end and it was when Emily did finally pass and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So, but Linda, you made a comment that there are times when you hold our children in bed when they're sick or something and you take care of them but there's nothing like holding a child in bed when they're dying. It's, and, and again, I'm completely paraphrasing, but that, that sort of took my breath away, that image. Yeah. I, I, I feel very blessed that um, I dream about her all the time. So not everybody has that. She, and she told me she would never leave me. So I think it's kind of like a gift. And uh, because of Emily, we have all these Emily connections now. Oh, yeah. We have some wonderful young people and young adults and some parents who we've met who um, they're sacred connections now. And uh, we don't have all the answers, but we get it. And there's nothing that people can tell us that will shock us. I, I sent the book to a, a girl. I saw a TEDx talk about a girl who recovered herself. Um, Christy Amadeo, and I was moved by that. And I and I sent her the book. And she's in New Zealand, and it was last June when COVID was, you know. And it took her like two months to get the book because there was no flights going in and out of New Zealand. Everything had to be quarantined when it got there. But she she read it, and she's opening a recovery center in in New Zealand, and they just had a campaign, a 27 campaign because. 27 people a day die from an eating disorder, but they had 27 recovery stories um, to, to help fundraise for this recovery center they're opening. And it's, it was in memory of Emily and they're planting a tree there in memory of Emily. So um, just people remember her. She's, she's just touched so many lives. And, and um, she, she was always the one who was there for everybody else. Everybody else, yeah. There's, there's something that there's another small part that I want to read. And, and again, I'm, I'm reading stuff towards the end of the book, but when you said Jack that, and, and I know Christy most beautiful soul. I, I, I know her professionally and personally and, and, and what an honor to have a tree planted for Emily at Christie's place. That that's amazing. 
It reminds me of this part, though, that you wrote, and and this is talking about how how the world doesn't truly understand internal struggles. And if we just look at people from the outside, we can think everything's okay, or if their labs are okay, or if their vitals are okay, and we're not tending to the internal or acknowledging. And Linda, I think you wrote this, and forgive me, I don't know if it was a day or two or shortly after Emily passed away, and you and you and Jack had a tree that had to be cut down. And this is what you wrote. Not long ago, we finally decided to have it taken down. And although it looked healthy on the outside, to our surprise, the arborist told us the tree had been decaying on the inside for a very long time. Quote, it was just a matter of time before the tree would have come down on its own, splitting down the center, he explained. I didn't think much about it at the time, but today I think how strange it is that a tree could be so damaged at its core and for such a long time, yet the damage could be entirely camouflaged by its beautiful leaves and its height. From our vantage point, there was no damage visible. We just saw and appreciated the tree's beauty. And then I think of Emily. That is such a, a, a powerful, beautiful, heartbreaking image of what Emily was doing, which was showing up in the world, trying to show the world one thing, and inside she was actually dying. Yeah. Yeah. And when that tree came down, and was that like a year? We were still right. That was around the time we were finishing, finishing up the first the draft of the book. It was at least it was at least a year or so later. Um, and I never thought about that then. And you know, that tree was so visible in Emily's room. And I had, I mean, I can't. I go in Emily's room a lot because I, I still feel her there. Um, but when they took that tree down and the and the and the arborist, you know, told us that. And they said it probably happened during the ice storm. Yeah, back which, in 1990. Which we wrote, which we wrote about in the book. And we wondered about the ice storm because after the ice storm, <clears throat> Emily developed a few perfectionistic tendencies. And one of the things we thought was, well, you know, maybe the ice storm we lost power for 10 days it was just devastating here um i mean and not like a, a hurricane or flood but you know f- losing power and seeing you know just the devastation and the trees down everywhere and we we still had her slumber party uh it was her 10th birthday but after that she just you know we, she would like to, to vacuum the house and do things like that and we just thought maybe she just felt you know maybe a lack of control or you know something maybe there was something in that in that ice storm that triggered something in her too so um but it wasn't obsessive or anything at that point and people wanted to borrow her every now and then but i i didn't really think about that till until um they took that tree down and they said that and it's funny how you have revelations forever after 
there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what we might have missed. You know, um, I know there's people that will think that, well, you know, this spitting up that she had, you know, was something that she caused herself. And um, I don't think so because, you know, she never got up after dinner and went into the bathroom and, and she never hid it. It was just a little cup that she'd sit on her desk and, and it wasn't vomiting. It was just spitting up the little things that came up. So um, I just, I don't believe that, you know, back when she was 16, 15, 16, 17, she was forcing herself to do that. I think it was just something. Well, she you know, was so open about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. and I'm pretty, um, I'm pretty in tune. So and she, and she and Linda had just such a relationship that um, Emily would always tell her the truth. Yeah. Until she got sick. Until she got sick. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, that is what happens. And I use my own experience all the time. And I say to people, I am not a liar. But when I was in my eating disorder, I most certainly did. I lied all the time. And so just like you said, Linda, she, she, she always told the truth until. Go ahead. Look like you were going to say something. Was there something in your journey that something someone said or something someone did that I know you had very loving parents just from listening to your interviews. Was there something in your life that you look back at and think it was just pivotal to your recovery? Or... I, I wish I could. Um, there's always this story that I tell about being at a party one day and just literally seeing the freedom that my friends were experiencing is while they were eating and drinking and dancing. And I was in my head counting how many chips I had taken and very carefully drinking my beer so I didn't get bloated. And for some reason, that was a really like, wow, I, this isn't, this is not doing for me what I thought it was going to do. Like, I am not getting what I thought I was going to get from anorexia nervosa. In fact, I'm getting farther and farther away from it. I'm no longer confident. I no longer can socialize. I don't relate to people. I don't connect. It is changes like that that happen that is what is, again, from my experience. And and by the way, a party at my friends is not what turned it around. There's a million things that go into the eating disorder and start with the recovery process. And, but for some reason, that's a moment. I can remember seeing my friends dancing and scooping guacamole up and eating the chips and drinking the beer. And I thought, how are they doing that? How are they doing that? and getting all sweaty and bloated. And then some of them are going to go home and, you know, make love to their partners, but their bodies aren't going to be perfect. How are they doing that? And there was something so profound to me that I was like, I am so tired. This, this isn't working again. I still had a long time to go in my journey. I, it's just, it is the most interesting snapshot that for some reason I'm always drawn to that one. 
but it's significant that you remember it and it wasn't. Yeah. Go ahead. Your parents. My, my parents, you know, got support. I, you know, I, I, no, I, you know, people say to me all the time, like, what did you do? And I'm like, well, I just did it. And I, I wish I could, I wish I wrote a book then. I really do. Um, because I did it. I, I trudged through the recovery process. It was excruciating and they didn't have treatment back then. I did it all outpatient and not with a, a as eating disorder therapist. Um, and, and I just was so disconnected from my life and from myself for so long that I swear, I don't think my brain came back online until that day at that party. That's what it is. It's not that that was a pivotal moment, but I think I was close enough. I was far enough in the recovery process that I was nourishing myself enough that my brain went back online and I was able to see what I was doing to myself, to my life, to my family. And that's it. That's how I recovered nutrition. And by the way, everybody knows I am a spiritual being. I'm all about the psychological aspects that go into it, the family, the traumas. So I'm not just saying, oh, it's just nutrition. But if your brain is offline, well, you're going to be stuck for a long time. And you know, that's really significant too, because you can't expect somebody to just turn on a dime when the brain isn't working right and it's malnourished and it takes a long time to get back on track. And, and that's probably the most significant thing is that the amount of time that it takes someone uh, to get well, it's individual, um, but they need to be given that chance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's what the medical community and the insurance industry needs to understand. They, they just need to, um, and it will, it, it will save them it will so save, much oh my money God. too. You know, this, this, this revolving door of paying for acute care and, and, and not, you know, the long-term fixes is, is, is crazy. I mean, I, look, I, you know, as a pharmacist for 40 some odd years, I, I see that, you know, in, not just in mental illness, but a lot of illnesses where the, you know, the insurance companies will just continue to pay for, um, a pill for every ill. That's what we, that's what our society is, a pill for every ill. And, um, and it's, and it's, it's not working. I've seen it not work for years and, and uh, it's gotten worse, I think in the, in the last few years. And uh, I just, I shake my head at some, some of the, the therapy that is out there for people with mental, mental illness, because, um, you know, when I, when I call a doctor and, and, and I'm concerned about the amount of medication somebody's taking. And they say, well, this is a difficult case. And I say, well, yeah, obviously it, it is. And you've thrown the kitchen sink at them and they're still, um, you know, not doing well. Um, you know, they, they need more than just uh, to throw 11 pills down their throat every day. So they need somebody who understands. And, and that's, that's, you know, I, I wish that we had, known people like you 10 years ago and, and other, so many other people we've met uh, on this, on this journey that Emily could have connected with that um, were older and recovered. And there's a lot of things when she was in recovery, a lot of young, oh, much yeah. younger people. I, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that eating disorders and all mental illnesses need to be taken as seriously as physical illnesses because they become physical illnesses and um, they should be given the same level of care and consideration and treatment. No stigma. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is trying to break the stigma from mental health, mental illness. No stigma. Let's just, let's just listen to people, hear what's happening, meet them where they're at, support them, support the families, support the siblings. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I hate to say this. We're going to have to start winding down, but I wonder if anyone, like, how is your son? I, I, I'm wondering if people, people seem to forget that they're siblings. How, how is your son doing? He's doing okay. Um, he's quiet. Um, he's a guy. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, we, we keep Emily alive and we celebrate her birthday and we celebrate, uh, we're always together on her birthday in the day of her passing. We don't celebrate the day of her passing, but we're together and those are times we talk especially. And it's, it's hard as a parent to know how much, how much do we talk about it and how much, because he matters. He's wonderful. He's a, a wonderful young man, been a wonderful brother and support to his sister and to us. Um, so, you know, we're always, you know, trying to find that balance, but he's, he's, he's good. He's a lot like Jack. He's a really good guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing, he's doing okay. So, and we're doing okay. We're never going to be the same, Um, but we're putting one foot in front of the other. And some days we even skip a little. So. Before we come to a final closing, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share anything that you wanted to say before we end? I just want to say it's an incredible honor and I, appreciate and I'm thankful for everything that you are doing and you do it so well and thank you for your compassion and um, for taking the time to read our book and to interview us it means so much to us and um, I don't know I thank you it just I feel like I'm talking to a good friend so thank you thank you for that yeah and if there's other parents that are out there and struggling with someone um, with an eating disorder, or I've lost somebody with an eating disorder, tell the story. Don't, don't be ashamed to tell because we need to hear those stories. We're all in this together. And the more people hear these stories, the more it resonates with them and tell it to politicians, tell it to whoever, you know, but get the story out there because the lives of these these wonderful people mattered. You know, it, it could be a son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew, a wife, husband. a husband. You know, I mean, there's no there's, boundaries with eating disorders. That's for sure. Yeah, and there's all kinds of people left behind, and and they they can't be left behind in silence. You got to voice voice your story and and change the system, change the system. 
We're going to have a march on Washington. We're going to have, point. yeah. I mean, but, that's, yeah, that is a goal of mine to, to sit in front of a Senate committee and, and have a bunch of parents there telling their stories about the frustrations of, of, of their, their children's and, and why they're, why they're not here anymore. You know, I watched the gymnast in front of the Senate, you know, talking about, you know, how the FBI failed them and all the, the time, the years and years that they were abused and how powerful that was and how everybody cried and, and how powerful and, and how that's, you know, changing <clears throat> that, you know, community that, and, um, who knows? Um, I'm 69. I didn't think I'd be in this place at 69. And uh, but for however long I'm walking the earth, my passion and my mission is to um, um, try to change the system. So there's not another Emily out there. I always she told was, Emily to write. She was a great writer. And, she you know, did. She journaled she, a lot. She journaled a lot, as, as some of it's in her book. But you know, I always thought she would recover and write a book and be out there telling her story and helping other people recover. So we're just doing that for her. I just want to say that, you know, Linda, you thanked me. I, I want to thank the two of you for trusting me to talk about this story, um, for spending time with me, um, and for letting listeners know, um, know about your book and, I, I could just go on forever, but I feel incredibly honored that the two of you have come on the show. So I just want to thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Bless you. you. Absolutely. You. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.